Hello everybody, this is episode 47 of The Great Divide. I am Svein in Norway, and this is the point where I would introduce my co-host Tom in America. But sadly, Tom in America isn't here today. And I know he didn't leave the show. He is still on the show, but he has had to take a break for a while. He has three jobs going right now, so every waking moment is accounted for. He works daytime, he works evening, and sometimes even nights or weekends, I think. So we had a talk about what that would mean for the show. So we had two options. Take a break or keep going without Tom. And I would never have suggested to go without Tom, but he suggested it and said, actually... Why don't you just go? And we get a replacement for me to cover for a couple of episodes. And he suggested a replacement who we reached out to and who happily agreed to try. So I'm going to introduce my temporary co-host for this episode and possibly the next couple of episodes. Who are you, mystery co-host? Introduce yourself. <laughs> yeah, hi, this is Arlen Bartels from uh, the other side of DC from Tom. I'm the token American on the show. <laughs> we need to have one, I guess. I guess so. The question is if I would be substituted with another token Norwegian. But we'll see. You won't get rid of me that easily. Maybe we'll never <laughs> find out. So, Arlen, the shock, the surprise, how did you react to being asked? Well, you know, after listening on the last podcast, I guess it was episode 46, and you guys were talking about a $2 Kickstarter, I was surprised to learn that you guys were expecting sort of FIFA-style bribery money to be <laughs> co-host, but... Um, it was. It was. I was actually really delighted. I, I'm completely an amateur at this, so I hope the folks will uh, judge that accordingly. Tom is fine. Um, really, have one of the most professional-sounding amateur podcasts out there for any band. I listen to a lot of podcasts, and theirs is one of the best produced. So, I just hope everybody understands that this is definitely not my day job. This is my first time doing anything like this. So, hopefully, folks will be patient with me and give you some feel into what it's like to <laughs> be doing it. Um, with, without the sort of practice, I would say I figured those. Fine, this was sort of this was sort of Tom having a go at you, trying to make you realize, you know, how much easier the show is to do with a professional partner rather than an amateur like me. So <laughs> I thought maybe he was feeling un unappreciated, and this was his way of getting you to appreciate him again. <laughs> that that could uh, work out both ways, you know. I suppose. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, okay, that's that's good. We will. Um, I guess. You are no stranger to the show, obviously. You've been here before. And um, so we won't do the big intro as far as when you got into big country and all of those things. Instead, we have a topic that we're going to pretty much dive straight into. And uh, we discussed before Tom said that he needed to take a break. In any case, what should we talk about next? And uh, one of the things I said is, you know, we talked about so many of big country's albums and we haven't talked about any solo projects yet. It's really about time we get into the solo projects. And uh, my suggestion, my first uh, album that I wanted to get into for some reason is Tony Butler's The Great Unknown, which is a huge album for me personally. And uh, Tom also likes it. But uh, that's where we kind of said, okay, do we put it on the back burner or is that a topic we can do without Tom? And we, we just decided this is one we can do now. And Arlen was picked to discuss this album with me and I guess to show some shock and horror because you said <laughs> right off the bat that this is not an album you listened enormously to over the years. And that's even overstating it a bit you know, and I'll tell a bit of the story about how I overlooked it but this was this has been really really fun over the last couple of weeks. I'm treating it like it's a brand new album. I actually bought it when it first came out and I bought the slight return version as well and listened to it a time or two and it, it didn't really grab me right away and 
um, I put it to the back of the closet in the CD bin and uh, just hadn't actually listened to it again until the last couple of weeks. And I guess it shows how people change over time or maybe how, you know, just the, um, the, the, the place you are in your life when you first hear an album that uh, this is really a terrific album. It's, it's really good from start to finish. There, there, are no, there are no bad tracks on it. I, I feel very embarrassed that I never gave this one a shot, you know. So I include this now right up there with albums that are almost worthy of being just considered part of the Big Country Pantheon. I'm, I'm, I'm very embarrassed that I don't, I don't remember this album from before a couple of weeks ago. And you told me, too, that the album actually had some stiff competition when it came out. Yeah, it did. So I, I'll, I'll just tell that story briefly. You know, when this came out, so this was basically midway between Why the Long Face and Driving to Damascus in the 1997, mm. summer of 97 is when it came out. The way I even learned about this album was because there was, an, a, there was a terrific music blog in the 90s um, called The War Against Silence by a guy from Boston named Glenn McDonald. Uh, it's still the, the best music blog I've ever read. It was basically... It wasn't so much just about the albums, but it was about how the albums were affecting his life and how the two sort of meshed together. And he was a huge big country fan. His title banner on the on the blog was, you know, something about how he owned 14 different copies of the Wonderland CD. And big country was easily his favorite band. And if you go back and check the work in silence, some of the reviews he put up in the 90s of big country albums are just amazing things to read. So it was there though that I learned about. Um, he reviewed both this album and Brighton Rock on the same day, and I hadn't known about either one of those, and so I immediately went down to the local CD store. They still had those back in those days and ordered them both, and they both came in on the same day. And Brighton Rock, I just absolutely love. That actually, to me, is my probably my favorite Big Country Live album, mm. and I actually like it better than Why the Long Face. And so I put on The Great Unknown once or twice and every time I you know, I, I made him part of the way through and then shifted over to Brighton Rock. And so every time after then when I was in a big country mood I would put on Brighton Rock and I just progressively forgot more and more about The Great Unknown. <laughs> yeah, I picked it up too when it came out and that had such an impact and I guess we'll talk a bit about that in terms of what you expect from a solo project. It really was the first solo project, and I'm not counting skits really because that was pre big country. But at this point, when you, the band was so established, this was the first album that really came out that was a very strong, clear solo personal statement from someone. And you come to it kind of thinking, well, how big a piece of the puzzle was Tony? You know, here I'm going to hear the quarter of big country that is Tony's part that I just latched onto, and I will say, I, I, I love this album, and this at the time was such a highlight. I was glad to see that the break was used to, to good effect by Tony, at least, for, for this album. So the band took a planned break, which meant the band members were free to do other things. We need to take a look at what Tony did during this time, because he didn't just release a solo album. The album was very much part of his big plan to launch a record label called Great West Records, and that really was a local label. It was a local Cornwall label. Well now, a new record label in Cornwall hopes to boost these figures even further. Great West Records have been set up by Tony Butler of the highly successful group Big Country. He's signed up five local bands and is determined to put the Southwest on the musical map. It's virgin territory as far as I'm concerned regarding uh, the talent that's down here because nothing has been exploited before. There's only a few groups have actually achieved a minimal sort of national notoriety but again it's just there's still this kind of funny uh, idea that uh, anything to do with the southwest is still kind of hicksville um but since i've been down here i i can sort of strongly say that that's not there's a lot of 
great um, up-and-coming artists uh, of all kinds, uh, whether it just be musical or in the photographic field or others. And I find Great West Records is a great sort of a focus for all those people to come and now try to apply their trade in a professional sense in this localized area and i think my major idea is to try and put uh, demo and call on on the map as much as glasgow has and manchester has in the past couple of years when we go looking for bands we t normally tend to receive demo tapes from people just sending them in or we get hot tips from friends and relatives or whoever somebody might come up to me and say look there's a great band you must go and see and i tend to, to follow that because this industry and what we do is about people and if people recommend something then i think it's well worth us checking out because again you know gwr are not a market-led organization we're a development company yeah, well it's only a couple of days to our launch um gig now and um yeah things are getting pretty hectic um it's been quite a lot trying to set up a show as well, a live show. Um, we've used the Cornwall Coliseum because it's really the best venue in Cornwall and uh, we want to help to revive it as well. It's uh, been quite quiet down there in recent times. And uh, Tony's actually doing his first solo performance featuring um, songs from his solo album. So it's a completely new departure for him. And obviously being in big country for 15 years, I've got a lot of experience because big country have, have achieved all levels of success. I mean, I've had success with other uh, outlets as well, such as Pete Townsend and, uh, oh God, a whole host pretenders, so, so many people. And the experience that I've garnered over the years is something that I can relate and sort of help other people and use my experience to a, a, a reasonable use rather than just sort of having them as memories when I'm really old and really grey. And I want to educate my artists into these pitfalls so they know what's going to happen to them. I want to give them the chance to know whether they want to do this or not for real. Yeah, so just uh, following on what you said a little bit, it's fine. I went on to Oliver Hunter's I Hope You Like It website, which is really a terrific fan site, almost up in, uh, in JFNG's BigCountryInfo.com. And in there, he had, there's a quote from the press release that Tony had when he started Great West Records. And he said here, The rapid turnover of products by the few major record companies does not allow for development of new talent, particularly in more rural counties. The record industry in the 60s and 70s had a policy to find and nurture potentially successful artists it is now obviously too expensive to do this on a national scale, so I'm doing it on a local level. Here's a press release online where he talked about how when he moved there to that area, to the Cornwall area, he was surprised to see how many great artists there were who weren't able to actually get out of that area. It sounds like the the southwest part of England isn't really, or at least wasn't a musical hotbed at that time. Mm -hmm. And so he was looking to find ways to take sort of unknown and local bands and sort of bridge them on an indie label until they could get larger success. And I, I, I was taking from that. There were, you know, there were some other bands that did things like that. U2 back in the 80s had a label called Mother Records where they were looking for Dublin bands. That's like, for instance, where Hot House Flowers got started. Mm. But it looked, like it, was a, it looked like it was a vehicle for Tony not only to release his own uh, albums and his own work that he had sort of piling up, but also for you know, the other bands that he was immersing himself in in that area. And you know, some of those bands actually are pretty good. When you look through those first five releases that came out right about the same time as his album, there was um, an indie type alternative band called Syrup, 
Um, there was a sort of a country-style singer-songwriter named Carolyn Berry, who, by the way, is not the actress, the English actress Carolyn Berry. I was getting confused about that. Um, there's, there's this band called Blind Panic that has some of the people who played on the album. Um, there was one called Sacred Turf that was sort of um, a vaguely pogsy sounding sort of traditional folk band that actually is still together in, a, in another way. I'm, you know, seeing where these bands had gone, I, um, Syrup and Carolyn Berry, I couldn't find anything about. Um, Blind Panic, some of the members actually still do play together. Sacred Turf, it looks like, had a reunion about in well, 2007, it said here. But the lead singer of Sacred Turf uh, actually has a new band now called Shell and Snails, so he's still playing. Hmm. The, the one that I remember most, though, is this one called Pelt. I actually bought the Pelt album not even realizing there was a connection to Great, uh, Great West Records. So, oh, really? Yeah, so it seems like those those bands, it, it didn't really have a lasting impact, but Great West Records survived quite a while because Tony's next album, um, actually his next three albums, all came out on Great West as well. So it looks like they almost made 20 releases on Great West before they folded. Yeah, that's not bad. Not bad at all. No, not, not at all. No, I, I, I think everybody who was around back in the day would go to that webpage and look at the description of these bands and consider them because these were not just uh, on Tony's label he was involved in the production of these bands too mm -hmm. so so he definitely had his footprint and his uh, sort of DNA is is part of these first uh, five EPs of these artists I have the Pelt album too and uh, that was actually Tony sent it to me that that's a fun story because I the first version of the great unknown I ordered had a glitch uh, in the middle of the song every day so I just posted on the board back then and said, does, does anyone else have that glitch? Is that supposed to be there? And then Tony responded saying, oh, it sounds like you have a faulty copy. Why don't you send it to me and I'll, I'll get you some replacement. And I said, well, that, that's great, Tony. You know, if you send me a replacement, I wouldn't mind if you signed it. So I got a new signed copy of The Great Unknown and he sent wow. a couple of these EPs of these other guys too on, on Great West Records. And Pelt was the one that made the impression on me. And uh, the one that I actually played got some rotation. Shot! Let's talk about The Great Unknown. The Great Unknown was Tony's album. And uh, whether he made Great West Records to get a platform for his album, or that just fit into the master plan, I, I guess we can't say. Uh, you mentioned some of the musicians. They played on some of the bands on the label. Yeah, definitely. Dennis Danzelman, who played guitar um, on some of the tracks, was was one who was in Blind Panic. And I don't know if Steve Cooksey was working with any of the other bands as an engineer, but I, I sort of get the impression that Steve Cooksey was sort of working across several of the bands. And, of course, we can't forget Josh Phillips on keyboards, who played with Big Country and other aspects as well. Mm. No, definitely. No, like I said, people look for the Big Country connections. Mm -hmm. And uh, we have Mark on two songs. We have Josh Phillips on two songs, uh, even though Josh, uh, he, he is known for playing keyboards, obviously, on the Peace in Our Time tour, and we have varying opinions on how well those keyboards fit into the music at the time, but he <laughs> also has uh, credit in the additional player section of Driving to Damascus. I think a lot of this is Tony, and he got help where he needs help, because um, apart from drums, which um, he clearly doesn't do any drumming here, but he has all the vocals, he has the bass. He is listed as lead rhythm and acoustic guitar. So what is left? I mean, there's no keyboards there, but no one else is mentioned. So, well. Well, it does say programming. Programming, okay. So maybe that's, uh, maybe that's what it is. 
But, uh, you know, even so, you know, it wouldn't be the first time that liner notes are wrong in big countries' <laughs> universe. Especially big country liner notes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, let's uh, dodge that bullet. And um, we'll go to a different part of the uh, of the booklet, which is Tony's actual liner notes, or the notes he made for the album. Uh, and uh, they, they say a lot about how to take this album, or what his thoughts about it was. I had the pleasure of working for and with some of the finest musicians and songwriters this country has ever produced. Therefore, it has always been my ambition to invite these artists, if available, to take part in one of my projects. Unfortunately, the circumstances in which I found myself recording this album did not make this possible. As much as I would have enjoyed their contributions, I found myself in a position to express myself fully. So, as, as an acknowledgement to their influence, I took the liberty of incorporating some of their musical and lyrical trademarks in this work. This is not really a solo album. It's me being every band I've ever been into on one CD. It's only rock and roll, and I still love it at 40. Hmm. At 40? He was a youngster. He was. Gosh. <laughs> it seemed old back then, but there you go. Hmm. The, the, these things happen. Uh, and obviously, uh, when he expanded the album uh, a couple years later, he added a few notes to the liner notes that reads, Four years later, I have made a slight return like the voodoo child itself. Pumped up the sound, added a few more tracks to close a chapter of my life. I still feel the same, but I want to do more. My next CD will be a solo album. Back soon, TB. Which is kind of interesting. It's, uh, if he doesn't really consider this a full solo album, but more like a tribute album to his influences, I very much see this <laughs> as a solo album, and I think it is too, but maybe he's just trying to get a point across in the going very far in, in, in doing so. I, uh, I wrote a bunch of these songs around sort of since 1980-something, right up until 1996, and I ventured out to uh, actually record something myself. I was never interested in being a solo artist, and I just literally did it for fun. But, uh... I was really pleased with some of the songs, and uh, it's nice to have a chance to perform them. It was written over a large period of time, and it says a lot of the songs go back to the 80s, and some songs uh, were quite new at the time. So that gives a span of at least 10 years. Uh, the greater known is more like uh, cleaning out the drawers and, and getting all the songs used that he's collected over the years. Yeah, you know, that's actually one thing that I wish if, if the liner notes were expanded, it would have talked about a little more is when the songs actually were written and if they really are sort of tributes to the sort of bands, um, either general or specific, that he really liked in the past. You know, who were those bands? Who, who was he in the, you know, looking in the style of when he wrote these? Well, this is where I have to say, so I've, you know, <laughs> you, you've told me before about me um, always sowing seeds of discontent. I have to say that I'm a little surprised <laughs> by how we wrote it in the liner notes. And so, you know, if, if the liner notes had said, I've been amazed since living in this part of the country how many great uh, great artists there are in this area who just can't get their music heard. And I resolved that my first album be to pull all these great local musicians in with me and do an album that is reflective of this area and its artistic background. I mean, something like that would, would have made sense. What, what he actually says here is, um, it's always been my ambition to invite these great artists. Unfortunately, none of them were available. So he's basically saying, there's a bunch of people I wanted to work with, but, but none of them were available, so I ended up just pulling all these other guys. I know that's not what he meant, but you would think that from a publicity standpoint, if you're trying to really sell 
your new label and the artists that are joining you that are on that label, you'd push a little bit more of the positives of that. But um, that's 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 a nit, I'm sure. No, it's um, it's an interesting point because he really doesn't go into it. He just said the circumstances in which he found himself didn't make this possible. That's a very uh, political uh, sentence. <laughs> it is. It, 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 it's not said in that sentence. Yeah, there, there, there's a whole lot of nothing said. No, uh, it's. <laughs> you, you can also think if this really, these songs, if they were all written as tributes to all these bands, why wouldn't he put this information in the booklet and let it be a tribute instead of having people guessing? Like we, yeah, he's paying tribute to these bands, uh, but nobody knows who these bands are. So <laughs> it's one of those things that okay, put it in there already. So we we want to know. We, we're interested. This is this is great stuff, and you know, there's there's room in the booklet for that kind of info. I think so. That's um, that's one of my nits. You know, the, the lack of info is always something I get, you know, irritated about and annoyed and all. <laughs> Well, I suppose though the hardcore fans, you always want to you always want to know more and learn more and read more, right? So, yeah, but it's kind of saying A without saying B. Yeah, and that's yeah. Uh, that's just a one large tease. He's a teaser, Tony. As far as expectations go, uh, I have to tell you, and I don't know if you felt the same way. Obviously, you didn't listen to the album, so <laughs> <laughs> as much as much as I did. So maybe this rings more true for you. But I really expected this album to be one I enjoyed owning more than listening to. You know, that's not a bad way of saying it. You know, whenever a bass player finally gets to release their first solo album, you expect, well, I expect it to be really rhythmic and very bass-heavy. Oh, yeah. <laughs> bass dance part, excellent. Well, yeah, exactly. Finally, their chance to be out front, you know. And one of the really interesting things to me is how he understates the bass playing on this. It's This doesn't sound like an album from a bass player. It sounds like an album from a guitar player. Oh, yeah. A lot of the bass playing in big country is almost lead bass. And yeah, you have... Exactly. Yeah, you have intros like you have Flame of the West in the 80s, you have the intro to Sail into Nothing in the 90s, plenty of examples, just wonderful melodic, intricate bass parts. You don't hear them on The Great Unknown. No. So no. That's, that's really interesting. But also when, um, when he played live, he played a couple of shows live uh, for that album, and he would always come out with lead guitar. You know, he, he was a guitar player on those shows. Yeah, that makes sense. So um, you checked out the availability of this album today. Yeah, and you know the this album is actually not available in the U.S. at least on either iTunes um, or Spotify or Rhapsody. So I did check out though to see if there was you know if it was available on um, Amazon or um, or eBay, and it's very interesting. You see a range of some people who obviously don't know what they have selling it for like four dollars used, and the most expensive one I saw was a still sealed version on Amazon for one hundred and sixty dollars U.S which blows my mind. So oh, wow. I, would, I would encourage people to go on to Amazon and get a copy or, or eBay because I don't know where else you can actually get them at this point. What happened was, obviously, the first version of The Great Unknown was released on Great West Records. The second one, The Slight Return, was released on track. And all the track stuff was on Spotify. It was on iTunes, along with all the rarities. The rarities and The Great Unknown and all these things. And then when track disappeared, when it went under, when it was closed, whatever you want to call it, all these things were pulled. And The Great Unknown disappeared in the same sinkhole. So it's not really available anywhere right now, and obviously the album is not in print. I did see some copies on Amazon.co.uk and a couple on Amazon.com. There was a copy on eBay. But we're talking like less than five copies at an affordable price range. I'm talking less than 20 bucks. 
-hmm. and then you have a couple in the several hundreds. So, right. so if you don't have this album and you're listening to this podcast and you're interested in checking it out, saying, huh, I never checked out The Great Unknown. Maybe I should try and find a copy. The five first of you will be lucky. <laughs> You'll find it at an <laughs> affordable price. The rest of you will have to either, well, be creative or wait for another copy to turn up or I don't know. That's that's your lot. So if if you don't have it, stop this podcast now. Go online and secure your copy before you continue listening. Good advice there. And it's very free. And I guess with that, we're ready to start moving into the album. This yeah, is this is where we look at the, the great unknown. Are you ready for this? This is your uh, first <laughs> album discussion. Or as ready as I'll ever be. <laughs> yeah, we'll see what that means in 14 songs from now. <laughs> I'll let you start with the first track, The Great Unknown. Well, okay, well, thank you. Well, yeah, so, again, this is a very different experience. I'm treating this basically like it's a new album and looking at it from that context. And so The Great Unknown, the title track, must set the tone for the album. I notice it's the longest song on the album as well, or at least one of the longest. And so I'm, I'm wondering, how is this going to go? And um, remembering that I was bringing that perspective of his progressive era and just not really having much memory of this, as the keyboards come in for the first minute, I'm thinking, oh, no, this is going to be things with hobbits and Stonehenge, isn't it? It's, it's pro progressive is just not my style. And so I think you probably I have a much uh, more fond view towards progressive music than myself. But So for the first minute, I had some little trepidation there. And then the guitars kicked in. I thought, wow, this is really a big country sounding song. They're, um, they, the guitars seem to be more an imitation of BC style parts, like, like people sort of... Um, aping or mimicking them. It's, and you notice really the, the skill difference between people who are good or very good guitar players and people who are really just brilliant like Stuart and, and Bruce. It's, you know, the, it's those big, wonderful, Celtic, ringing, anthemic guitar lines. But um, the one that kicks in right about the one-minute mark is very Stuart-esque. Mm -hmm. yeah. And some keyboards that come partly in. And, and then one of the things that happens right away is you notice that one of Tony's strengths and one of his limitations as a singer comes in. You know, although he has sort of a, a, a low speaking voice, he has a pretty high tenor singing voice. And it's a fairly soft voice he's got, and even though they double track him or multi-track his vocals, um, I noticed that so on some of the songs, um, his voice really cuts through nice and clean, but on some of the lab guitar parts, you know, his, his voice kind of struggles to be heard over the guitar mix. Um, 
But the thing that hit me right away is this it, This song sounded to me like it could have been a Buffalo Skinner's outtake. It reminded me a lot of We're Not in Kansas. Um, it was some of the, the same bridge and chorus structures. and um, So it's I, a no place like home outtake. I, well, to me, uh, <laughs> yeah, it could be. It actually could be. Um, and this is where I first started paying attention to some of the lyrics. You know, his lyrics um, throughout the album, and I'm sure we'll go through some of this, um, you know, he, he has a lot of, when, when he's doing love songs and things, they're, they're very simple, direct, and heartfelt, but there's some angry lyrics on this um, album as well, and mm-hmm. he's got some very um, colorful ways of his, of his um, angry lyrics. There's a lyric here, if I could, if I could find it here real quick. It was, um, it was me on the end of the fist on your face. Which is um, a, a line I've I've never heard before, but it, it's he's he's got a very colorful approach to lyrics when he's doing angry lyrics. Yeah, what this really does it sets the stage for the album very well because it lets you you see that there are elements that are different from big country, but there are a lot of the same things you love from big country's best work in it as well. As far as staking his own ground or kind of putting his own mark on things, th- this song doesn't really shake off the big country cobwebs. In fact, no. it seems to embrace it or maybe highlight his part of it. And, mm-hmm. you know, and uh, that's not a problem. In fact, I highly applaud it because I think far too many artists, once they release a solo work, feel the need to distance themselves from what they do in their day-to-day band. And suddenly they need to make their own artistic statement, so to speak. This song, The Great The Note, it's, it's very epic. And it's very, the arrangement is epic. And like you said, it's the longest song on the album. And it's full of unmistakably big country-esque Celtic guitar hooks. Just irresistible. It's, it's great, actually, to come out with that. And that was a big part of the wow when I first put on this album. And I couldn't believe how, how this was. I mean, we have to keep in mind here, as far as Tony Butler, what we had from him in the past, we had three B-sides. We had World on Fire from the Save Me single. We had the instrumental On the Shore from the Broken Heart single. And we had Another Misty Morning from from the Somebody Else single. That's not really, (laughs) well, something to base this on. I mean, and then we got this, which is that much more big country sounding than either one of those other songs. And I mean, I I like World of Fire quite a lot. And On the Shore is a nice little instrumental, but I I was not ready for this song. So this song was a big wow. And um, Tony, okay, a lot of people love him as a background vocalist. A lot of people either don't like or think at best he's okay as a lead vocalist. And I think um, on this album you will hear examples probably of great lead vocals, in my humble opinion, and lead vocals that are okay. I don't think he's a bad lead vocalist. I actually like Tony's voice quite a lot. And on this song I think he's very good, because the song kind of calls for the delivery he has. It's really emotional. I think Tony, he always had his heart on his sleeve. He would never sing stuff like, you know, you mentioned there are love songs in the album. There's not not a single I Love You Baby song. It's a very heartfelt whenever he gets into that. And so this song also, for the message he has here and the words that he's trying to to deliver, he really delivers them. It's it's hard on his sleeve delivery. It's the way his voice hits me. Yeah, you know, especially when he sings at the high end of his range, it's um, it, it's a very... Very heartfelt, passionate sound. He gets oh, yeah, definitely. He's very high end of his of his room when he's when he's sort of straining to hit that just higher note than he's slightly comfortable with. It's it's very passionate.
probably will never be the most technical vocalist I have in my musical collection, actually, far from it. But he will be one of the most earnest ones, and he'll be one of the most passionate ones, always. And that's, I guess, what I hear that makes me just melt when he really hits it and delivers that thing. Whereas for others who don't hear that, then, and, and that's fine, you know, <laughs> he's not going to hit everybody, but he, he definitely hits me, and that's why I really warm to his voice. It's not the most, it's it's not the best example on this album of that type of delivery, but it definitely is a great start because it's an epic song, and he sings pretty straight into that. So I, I guess we'll touch on that a bit more as we get into the album. And one other thing that 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 I notice here that probably um, eighteen years ago I didn't appreciate, but I do appreciate more now is his song structures are very interesting. There are lots of little ways that he plays with bridges and um, yes. some, some melody structures that are not the normal way of doing it, especially with big anthemic guitar rock. There's a lot of times as you're listening to a song for the first time, as you're listening to it, you kind of know where it's going, and it always sort of pays off exactly the way you would expect it to go. Mm-hmm. And with Tony, there's a lot of little parts where the first time you hear it, you go, oh, I, I didn't expect that. And the first time you hear it, it's a little unsettling, and then as you listen to it a little more, you actually appreciate it and thinking, that's really creative, that's really interesting. And The Great Unknown has a couple of little spots in it that are not the most expected musical bits. This is obviously also another, or really the first chance we have of checking out what Tony's solo band sound like. Mm-hmm. Um, the drummer, just to talk about the drums. Tom Jameson has a lot of very solid and uncomplicated drumming. There, there are times he stretches a bit musically, but for the most part, Tony is kind of painting with broad strokes. And the drumming kind of fits into that a bit, and also the keyboards. And this is one of the Josh Phillips songs. Um, he has a slightly out-of-tune synthesizer on this song. But <laughs> <laughs> little things like that, they're, they're kind of left in there. Yeah, I like when it's not too polished, because it sounds more real. Uh, going a little bit more into the lyrics, this is... Um, the title, we have to discuss the title. The title, The Great Unknown. Not just the title of this song, but the title of the album. And that, always in my head, I- it's a great title. And it's a great title for a lot of reasons. Uh, in my head, it falls in line with early big country iconic imagery. Like he's going out to the great unknown. The adventure. We have all the adventure themes of The Crossing. There's exploration. Great associations, right? The Great Unknown, going out there. And it's it's also Tony's first solo thing. It's, it's That was a great unknown to Tony at this time. He's out on his own. It's also an adventure. So perfect. It's a mission statement. Uh, but then you look at the song, <laughs> and that's where it gets a little bit more complicated. Someone's in the doldrums here. Someone's not doing well. He's, as the song starts and the album starts, someone's lying on the street, facing the gutter, and... Uh, so going back to the great unknown to bear my soul and find my home someone is trying to get their life together and that's basically the theme of this uh, this song there there are also some religious overtones here I feel where he sings uh, it was me on the cross with my hands full of holes now that can just be like a symbolism but also there's I held up my head to the picture of you there's a devil inside that could see me too and still doesn't need to be religious but with the picture of you and then the mention of a devil you know you never know and uh, he repeats in every chorus I just want you to be my guide someone's looking for salvation but this could all just be imagery it could be that he's just asking another person for help but uh, this is interesting to mention in light of songs that are coming later on the album because there's 
this is not the only example of where I think there could be religious overtones on the album, even though in, on this one it's more circumstantial and in other songs it's definitely more direct. So uh, the title definitely has two meanings to me. There's the whole The Great Unknown, The Adventure, and Tony's out there, and it's the name of the album. And then you have the guy who is <laughs> basically facing the dirt, lying on the street, trying to pick himself up and uh, and get himself back together. Yeah, I think so too, especially in the chorus. You know, this is a, a song about a person who is in a, in, a, in a period of uncertainty or confusion and confinement that they're trying to break out of. You know, the end of that chorus that you're reading, you know, the, the um, if I fail, I'll turn to stone and lose my place in the great unknown. Mm-hmm. So it's as if he's knowing that he's trying to break out and strike out, and maybe this is an allegory for Great West Records as well, striking out into something <laughs> he was brand new with it. It was clear he was trying to expand the boundaries of his personal life, yeah. not knowing what he was going to find, and realizing that there might not be a way back. Yeah, true. I think it's a great album title. It definitely fits the, the times and, and everything. But uh, that's that one. I asked you to rank the songs on the album similar to what Tom and I did, and we're going with the 14-track version, the first version of um, The Great Unknown. How does this song fit in your ranking of the album? Yeah, you know, so this was actually hard to do for me. You and you and Tom have sort of got that down to an art. But it's with the with the big country albums that I've lived with for decades, it actually sorts out pretty easily. And this is one of the fun parts of the show because, you know, since we when, when it's an album that we're all very familiar with, one of the fun things as a listener is figuring out which of you we agree with and whose side are we going to be on when it comes down to this rankings. Mm-hmm. Um, this is one of the, in, in this particular album, only really, so I've really immersed myself in it for a couple, three weeks here, but, and what I've noticed is the ones that were my favorites after the first week, it almost flips upside down um, a couple of weeks later as you start to mm-hmm. get into the songs deeper and understand them more. So, um, so um, I'm giving The Great Unknown uh, number four. Number four, that's, that's pretty good actually. This is one of those things that, what, what, what does a ranking mean? Certainly, I think the 10 first songs of the 14 are all really great songs. And then the next one is okay, and we have some that dips a bit for me. Mm-hmm. This is amongst the group of songs I really like, but I rank it towards the end of those. So it's number 10 for me. Living side by side. We talked lyrical themes of the first song, and looking at this one too, immediately that religious theme I talked about pops up again. This time, very much stronger and clearer than the first song. In fact, this is probably the out-and-out most religious song on the album. Uh, the verses seem, at least on the surface, to be just a random description of, of random things. I mean, what does it mean that there's a beauty in an English garden, there's a heat in the southern sea, there's a smell in a Swedish forest, chilling in the northern breeze, and you can just go down. I don't have a problem with it, though. It's, it's, it's kind of, it works in the context of the song. It's, it's nice when he sings, chilling in a northern breeze always uh, hits home here in the Nordics. But but it doesn't take the song anywhere, really. That That's the thing. Is that it's just words that sound nice, but it doesn't tie anything together. And then he gets into the bridge, where when it, it all 
when he feels it's all gone wrong, it reappears, the book of light that shines the answer. And there's no doubt what he's singing about there. <laughs> and you go on to, side aside, I'll stand with Moses, the words in stone, they'll be my guide. So basically we have the tablets with the Ten Commandments, and he's declaring that, yep, I'm, I'm living my life by them, they are my guide. I think um, the real strength of this song to me is musically. Uh, this song, musically, what a, what a, what a fantastic song. I, I just love the way, right up front, you have the lead guitar, the way it starts. Shades of classic big country, for sure. And also, a little later in the song, uh, this song is the album showcase of why Tony is the backup vocal king. This mm. song has a fantastic vocal arrangement. Look to the second verse. I'm not sure how many voices you find on that track, but it's a lot. Multi-layered vocals, several things. You have the main vocal, multi-layered. You have the harmony vocals, multi-layered. And they all sound amazing. That segment just brings me chills. That is so beautiful, so well done. I mean, Tony is the vocal king, and when I hear stuff like this on the solo album, that just reiterates to me that perhaps he's had a large role in arranging vocals. I mean, he definitely had a lion's share of backup vocals for Big Country, and I wouldn't be surprised if he arranged stuff like that, especially as the 90s uh, would go on. The band got a lot of great backing vocals into their albums, and I always highlight Wide Long Face as the backup vocal album of Big Country. It's a lot of phenomenal three-part gorgeous harmonies, and there's definitely more than that on this song here. There's so many layers of great vocals so that I will always go to this song just to hear that it almost doesn't matter what it sings it matches together so beautifully I'm I'm just absolutely taken by that and also the rest of the song is musically extremely uplifting and uh, a lot of people will probably find the lyrics as well quite uplifting it's a very strong statement that's pretty much my take on that song it's um Obviously, the music means a heck of a lot to me, the vocal arrangements especially. I think it's out of this world, to be honest, that section. Uh, whereas the lyrics are more nice and uh, not the best on the album. Yeah, I feel uh, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. I, I felt the same as you. It's obvious that there are some religious overtones and imagery here. And I, so that made me go back to the first verse and think maybe what was he trying to do as a song structure? And of course, he's he's showing things that push sensations or, or um, senses, basically, and emotions, the extremes, chill in a northern breeze, blue in a burning flame, you know, the blue flames are the hottest, mm -hmm. crime and punishment, hate in a riot. And the thing that hit me was, and I don't know if this is self-conscious or maybe I'm, or I'm just making too big a leap on this, but it sort of reminded me, in a way, of like the old bird song, turn, 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 you know, a time to live, a time to die, a, you know, which was actually sort of taken from the Bible. Mm -hmm. And I was trying to think if there was maybe some way that he was doing it. There's a very specific strong song structure he's got as he's describing different situations and different emotions and the way it's listed so specifically, you know, there's a blank, there's a blank. I, I, I think it's a very intentional method by which he's doing the, the, the lyrics there. Uh, I don't, quite know it, it loses its way a bit then on the second verse 
in terms of, of that structure. So I may be just looking at this, looking for something that's not there. It's always easy to do that. But I think it's a very deliberate, I think he achieved the structure that he's trying to achieve. I'm just not quite sure what it was. Um, <laughs> yeah. the, with, with, with the vocals, I'm agreeing with you with the mass vocals. You know, it's interesting when people do that, when you, when you double track or triple track your own vocals and harmonies with it, you know, one of the things you're doing is trying to um, beef up and broaden the sound a little bit and, and make the sound a little more um, impacting. But the way, he, the way he does it is very interesting by multi-tracking both the melody and the melody vocal and the harmony vocals with it. You have this, you know, chorus of a thousand Tonys oh, yes. on there that is a very nice, very effective approach. Um, I, I would say, too, musically, this is one of the ones that really shows some of the interesting bridges and musical structures that are not what you would typically expect the, the first time you hear it or the hundredth time you hear it, you're still sort of taken by, well, that's not really a conventional song structure, but it's actually pretty cool. Mm-hmm. And I will say that the, that opening riff is fantastic, especially coming right out of the great unknown into another big, meaty, great intro riff. Yeah. But then I have to say that for me, it sort of dissipates then when they get into the first um, in, into the first verse because you've got this hard, driving, charging guitar sound, and then it all just dies away and it's almost a folk melody then that he's saying on, on the verses it sort of reminds me of stuff that used to happen like in 70s power pop where there would be this really big opening big riff and then it would drop down to a real quiet vocal like um oh what's the example i like like the raspberries i'll go all the way mm-hmm. you know this really charging driving riff and then immediately you pull back all that momentum and it's like you're going into another song and i had a little trouble with that, but I, I mean, he's he's doing exactly what he set out to do. It's just different than what I would have hoped for. <laughs> You're right. No, he definitely comes out big, right, with the riff and the guitar thing. Mm-hmm. And the first verse isn't as big. If he had something like the second verse, which has the multitude of tonies, which sounds mm-hmm. fantastic, it sounds huge, but it would have been probably too much to start the first verse with that, but then it, it just grows when it gets to that second verse. That's when you have the big sound again. Alright, so are you ready to wrap it up with a ranking? Yeah, I am, and this is an example of how strong the album is to me, because even though there's a lot of positive things that we just mentioned, this one didn't really hit me as much as it hit some of the others, so I had this one all the way down at number 12. I'm a little bit above you. It's not uh, in my top half either. It's it's the top of the second half, so this is number 8 for me. The next song is I Believe in Angels. Um, this is a really interesting one. This is the first time when in the album where you really see him break away uh, sharply from the big country sound into a whole different, whole different area. You know, more one of the first love songs I think. Although it's a, it's an interesting take on a love song. But the really heavy synths that come in right at the start grab me because well, that's now th- this really is not what I had expected. And I like it. This may be more of a, a sound that he's really looking for away from Big Country, the other side of the coin as he's doing songwriting. And, you know, with um, keyboards and synthesizers, you know, they can be tricky things. When you use them to good effect, they're really powerful. And they can also be really distracting, though. And I really love the way that they had, um, the, the, with the heavy 
lines here that, he, that they do with the synths. And when I was first hearing it, um, it, it's an interesting coincidence what hit me right away is that I thought it sounded sort of like China Crisis from the mid 80s mm. especially like the working with fire and steel period and things and it was really interesting later on maybe it's just subliminal to find out that Steve Cooksey the engineer had also done work with China Crisis in the past and so I don't know if there's any connection there or if it just worked out as a coincidence but I really love the synth line they've got in it This is the first one, the first song in the album where you really hear Tony's bass lines come out, at least to me. Yeah, yeah. Um, and it's a different kind of bass sound, too. It's a little bit more of an electronic processed bass sound. You know, when Derek joined up in the band, one of the things that everyone pointed out to is how different his playing style was from Tony's and how much more electronic and processed it was. But this one here, really the bass line is sort of processed, too, and very electronic sounding. And I think this is the first, this was my, actually my favorite, or my first favorite vocal performance of Tony's, because I think without having to fight the guitars and the, and the loud sounds, I think his voice cuts across the music very well. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I think that the chorus is actually also another really good example of sort of his unconventional sense of melody in a few cases, where, you know, the, the first time, you, you actually have to actively listen to it. It's not necessarily just background music that you that you hear because the song structure does challenge the listener a little bit and you have to you have you have to you see where he's getting at with it and once you once you lock into it it's actually very interesting um there's beautiful instrumental section that happens in the last half of it as well that i think it's really fantastic i actually like this one quite a bit Mm, yeah no i i I agree with a lot of what you said there i think this is definitely uh, a song that breaks away from big country and a big style and I think it's uh, it comes at the right time because he opens with the great unknown, follows with uh, living side by side, two songs that has definite roots in big country sound, and then he makes uh, a left turn. It's a really good fit for Tony. This song, very evocative still, and um, that that is one thing that isn't lost and that is kept. It, it's still evocative, and I think the keywords are nice touches. And I would expect a lot of people to have issues with them for some reason. I don't know why. Maybe just because it's so different. But uh, I guess it also depends on what people expect. And uh, a lot of people, if if you come to this album expecting literally big country B-sides, some songs will probably satisfy and This song would probably not be one of them. But mm-hmm. I think uh, it, it's definitely one of the uh, bass showcases, to use that word. And this album does not have a lot of out-and-out bass showcases. But this song is a good example of how... Tony is the master of the four-stringed beast. This is <laughs> this is a sweet, gentle ballad, but the bass line is restless and evasive and just lies there and it never rests. It it, it looks for that little perfect spot to fill without being busy. That uh, a great bass player knows how to do it. And without question, Tony's a great bass player. Uh, th- this song is interesting lyrically too. Um, I mean... Tony has said in the in the past in a couple of situations that this song was written about many of my favorite people, quote-unquote. This one was written about a lot of my favorite people. It's called I Believe in Angels. I 
I have to look at the title here. I believe in angels. And I'm, I'm, I'm not sure how literal we should take that, but uh, the idea of angels as a concept, we have to uh, also look at it from the religious point of view, that there were religious hints in the first song and a very strong religious statement in the second one. Is this a third one that touches on something here? Because angels are keyed to, to Christianity, but uh, you know, how should you read it? And in Norway, we have a, an infamous princess. Her younger brother is the crown prince, so she will never be queen. But the princess of Norway is a bit new agey, and she's always had these leanings towards... Uh, she, when she was into horse riding in her teens and, tw- and tweens, she, uh, things would come out that she knew how to speak with horses. Mm-hmm. And in her later years, she's in her early 40s now, she, some years back she established an angel school where people could uh, subscribe to take classes and learn how to communicate with angels. So the whole idea about angels and the title I Believe in Angels is very loaded in Norway because we have all that thing that makes it kind of a target of ridicule. Just the expression angels in itself has gotten sort of tainted by that. But I think uh, the way I take this song, people you knew very well and had strong feelings for will still be with you because they left a deep imprint on you. And the physical imprint can be there. And these imprints can be triggered by memories or places or pieces of music. And they can, in the right situation, feel so strong that you feel a person's presence. So when Tony sings in this song, I have felt their love floating by, it feels into that. It, it could mean simply you, you, you are in this situation and you tap into something and you knew them so well that those feelings come up again. And they, they sort of feel like it feels real to the person that is in that situation. So when memory of that person's presence hits you and you really feel it, it can, it can feel like that person is with you in spirit, that the person is still there, maybe feeling like they're still guiding you or sending you some message. And that can be a personal thing. And that is miles away from going to a school to learn to communicate with angels and all that new agey uh, wish-wash. So I, I buy into the song on that level. And that is a, a an important pretext. And this song has a deep personal significance to me because of that experience and uh, I'll tell a story which takes me back to shortly after this album was released when my grandma passed away and I lived at the opposite side of the country so I didn't get a chance to say goodbye she got ill relatively quickly so everybody in the family got to say goodbye to her and I didn't get that chance so I was traveling home alone my wife was prevented from traveling with me but I went on the bus made a long, dreary trek across the country, feeling really down and sad and sitting there, thinking about stuff, how I never got to say goodbye. And it was really a sad, sad place to be. And listening to music, having a tape of songs I put on there, including plenty of songs from this album, and then I sit there feeling or thinking about my grandma, and suddenly I tap into that thing where I feel her presence and telling me that it's okay, it's fine. And at the same time, as if by divine intervention, the song that happens to be playing is I Believe in Angels by Tony Butler. And he is singing the words. And that those words were such a source of relief 
it uh, it helped me through the rest of the journey and it helped actually close something because I could feel I could feel that it was okay and uh, that I didn't have to be there to physically say goodbye because we had a good relationship and it uh, it just worked out that way so this song I believe in angels it's very important for me to pretext it that I'm not part of the um, <laughs> the princess's school of, of communicating with angels but I, I do believe that people can still feel the presence of those who have passed and and this song came at the right time so this song um, I know it's a small thing but it also gave me this incredible wave of comfort and helped me find closure with something so that happened I'm not, I'm not sure if it happened because of this song, but that song was there and those words meant something to me. So I will, ever, I will really forever hold this song in high esteem because of that. So it's one of many stories that everybody will have that a song came along at the right time in their life and actually helped them with something. Yeah, you know, I, I understand what you mean. That's, that's a terrific story, by the way. It's fine, you know, and the, it's funny, although obviously it wasn't this album, but I live across country from both of my parents and they both passed now. And the cross country journey to get to them, to try to get to them before they passed, I still remember every song that I that I listened to on that trip. Mm-hmm. And obviously it wasn't this album, but I, I, I know how that must have been for you. I, I do think that you're right, though, that this is more the secular... Well, although this is the most explicitly religious of the first three titles, it's probably the least Judeo-Christian religion-centric mm-hmm. in the actual lyrics itself. I do think it is more about the, the thought that as people leave your life and pass on, that they become angels still watching out for you. You know, not the guardian angels type that we see from from Judeo-Christian biblical times, but, you know, just actually more saying that those people who are with you, once they've left, they're still with you, just in a different role. And one of the things that keyed me into that is, of course, in, in religious terms, you know, the, you know the, the, the way that people think of angels has changed a lot from the original yeah. um, way it was. Those were, you know, those were fearsome warrior-type creatures, which is why in the Old Testament, anytime someone encountered an angel, the first thing they did was fall on their face in fear. That's why the first thing an angel always says is, do not fear. And in this song, where Tony's singing, where he whispers that little break, you know, two-thirds of the way through, when he does the little whispered, I love you, that's not what people do in the traditional biblical version of angels. So that's what sort of triggered to me that it was more the secular version of angels, uh, of being spirits passing on, but still being part of your life. Mm-hmm. It's uh, as far as being a tribute to the people we have lost and uh, many of his favorite people. Uh, it's a very nice tribute. Now, if I have to have issue with something in the song, it would be the first verse or and the second verse even. Uh, I'm not sure it makes sense to me. <laughs> like, I will never know. I will never find a way to deal with you. It never will. I won't even try to make your dream come true, etc., etc. If you look at that, it doesn't seem very reconciling in any way. This actually resonates for me a little bit. That that could be a relationship with your parents very easily, that you have a troubled relationship with, you can't seem to please them, you know, the the dreams that they have for you are different than the dreams you've gone Mm -hmm. for yourself. So to me, I I view that as being a a direct message out to some parental or or grandparental figure in his life. Mm. Yeah, that's uh, that's the best take I could uh, come up with as well. I'll I'll buy yours. Okay, so how do you rank this song? Well, you know, this is one of the ones that, that really grew on me as, um, as, I, as I really immersed myself in it. So um, for me, um, only because I found some ones I liked even more, I put this one in at number five. All right. Our most aligned song yet. This, uh, this is definitely one of my favorites, too. It's my number four. 
Well, we need to start disagreeing here a little bit more, so I think this one will be interesting. <laughs> we actually had a huge one on the first one. Ten and four. It's well, six. Six apart is not bad. No, but right. we'll, we'll see. We'll, uh, it will all come out in the wash. When the trees come down, we're getting into the album here, and uh, this is yet another cool intro. I love the intro to When the Trees Come Down. There is something very dramatic about those guitars. There is a slightly uneasy feel to them, actually, and it sets up the song very nicely. Very dramatic sounding guitars, not necessarily in the playing, it's something about the sound that just sets up the song for me. Uh, but When the Trees Come Down, if you look at the title uh, at face value, you think, okay, we have an environmentalist song here. Uh, but no, that's not the case. You're talking about the Christmas trees. When the Christmas trees come down in January, he gets the blues. And it's uh, <laughs> when, that, when I realized that's what the song was about, my first reaction was actually to laugh. I, I laughed out loud because that is, on one hand, ridiculous. But then I looked at the words and, you, uh, and I just, they started resonating. And I said, you know, he's right. Uh, I, I feel the same way. I, I'm I'm a big fan of Christmas. I, I love Christmas. And once Christmas is over, I always look forward to the next one. And <laughs> you have to, to look at the English dryness of some of these, these words. <laughs> They're killer, actually. I color up the gray again. I see a few more lines, my friend. <laughs> I gotta laugh. It's, uh, it's so dry. But the, <laughs> the day the trees come down on that January day, an empty feeling grows in my heart. Until the birdsong calls and the snow melts away, my life's a cold, dark place, an empty place in time. It's pretty bleak. So this is more than just being sad about it. This is someone who feels emptiness. And um, I think the words are fantastic. It, it's perhaps not the high poetry of classic big country. It's not like In a Big Country or Poro Man or East of Eden or whatever song you may want to use a, as an example. But I feel they are so spot on when it comes to describing a mood. I, I recognize the feeling so well and it's, it's really sung with that dry humor. But at the same time, this is the fourth song in a row. We're, we're not totally dismissing any sort of religious overtones yet. We're still having them. When he says... I miss the spirit of the season of the Lord. And then you wonder, what is it he's missing? Is it the Christmas time? Is it the Christmas spirit? Is, is it the family get-together? Or is it the religious aspect? Like the, the message of Christmas and what it's about and what it means religiously. Uh, it doesn't need to be that. Because that's really the only reference. And the, the season of the Lord can mean anything. That's just, it can be just another way of describing Christmas. But it's a reference. And it's worth noting that for the fourth song in a row we have one of those potential references. And uh, just to look at the way this song ends, I, I love the bridge when he thinks, when February comes, my life will start anew. Again, that, he throws in a different musical aspect of the song, and it gives the song that little lift that it requires at that point in the song. I think that's a, just a gorgeous part. Like 
I also have to call out, uh, and this is a tribute to uh, to my uh, co-host Tom. There is a riffing part on this song. It almost sounds like how I would imagine my friend Thomas Kirchival would have played and arranged this track. <laughs> Tom never leaves the show, even when he leaves the show physically, he's always here with us in spirit. So, <laughs> and this song definitely has that part made me think of him. So, oh, that's great. Yeah, you know, I feel a lot of the same. Again, a lot of the same things you mentioned when I first saw the title. Um, I was expecting it to be an environmental item, maybe something even you know along the lines of blues on a green planet or something. But then you learn right away that really it's um, his salute to seasonal affected disorder. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> you know that, that period of time that in like we've all felt this. I, I grew up in the in the Rocky Mountains, and you know up through up December never seems so cold, no matter how what the temperature says, because you've got all of the holidays you're preparing for from Christmas and up through New Year's, and then. Right about the time when the, when you bring the trees down after the holidays, you know that's when the dark of winter really sets in. Like like I'm telling you, Mr. Norway, but you know there's the that's when you've got to get through then the rest of the winter until it becomes spring. And so that's why when the I thought it was really interesting that the the one part that is really hopeful where he talks about starting life anew when the springtime comes, that's when the music really changes. Mm-hmm. And so he takes that mood which has been the you know the dark winter. The how am I going to get through the rest of this winter? Uh, this is uh, it's getting harder to get to work again. Getting harder every year, my friend. You know it, when he has that point though, but he's looking forward to know that there will always be another spring. Yeah. Um, even if that's not how it ends in the very end. In the last line of the song, my life's a cold, dark space, an empty place in time. Frankly, it, this is one of those cases where you know you you because it's so up tempo and so charged. You know you you. It gives you a colorful palette that you're working from until you look at the lyrics and you say, wow, he's actually singing about being depressed in this sort of up-tempo, peppy-sounding rock song. He's actually talking about he's depressed as heck and can hardly get through the rest of the winter to get to spring. Yeah, yeah, that's true. I think um, I think it really describes it well. So there's a lot of aspects to this song that I, I definitely I, I see and I recognize. Yeah, I kind of thought of it in a way as sort of like, you know, whistling past the graveyard, the up-tempo peppiness, peppiness is a little trite term, but then, you know, that, that up-tempo style of the song is sort of trying to see you through because you wait, especially in the middle of winter when you wake up in the morning, you know, it's it's dark when you go to work, it's dark when you come home, it's, you know, you need something to sort of motivate you to get you through those winter days, and so that's why it would make sense to me that this was a up-tempo rock song and not a not a ballad. Yeah, yeah. No, it's, it is what it is. This is Tony. This is our Tony. He comes up with these things, and that's why we love him. <laughs> so how do you rank this song? Well, you know, to me, a bit more of a minor song, really, on the album. It, it didn't really sync with me, although I really liked aspects of it. I thought there were parts of it that were really terrific. Um, I actually didn't have it up as high as some others. I had it as number nine. Uh, I have it as number six. I beat you! <laughs> <laughs> We can have this conversation when I've had 18 years to listen to the album, and then we'll see if things have, if things have evolved at all. I still have 18 years on you.
All right, uh, Mist in Your Moonlight. And as Stuart says, this one is yours. Yeah, so this one is one that's actually a little harder for me because this is one that's harder to tap into emotionally because this is a very angry song. The the way the guitars come in, you know, sort of the, the power chords building the tension at the start and the uneasiness. And when you read the, the lyrics, he's angry with yeah. somebody. Um, it's somebody, you know, the people who, I think it's probably more than one person here, but... Um, you know, even when you get down to the second verse, I would call you a whore, always wanting more. I should break your jaw. You just used me. You know, this is this is visceral, angry stuff. Mm. So having come from the the sort of warm, you know, belief in angels to sort of pulling back to just the emotional mood of making it through the winter, um, he's mad at this stage, and it reflects. It, it, it's sort of. It's very honest and very piercing the way he talks through it, but it's hard to embrace it a little bit because we've just come through some sort of um, personal and warmly emotional songs, and then you just get kind of smacked in the face with this song that is um, very, very serious and very, very strong. You know, it's sort of a bludgeoning rock sound, and but, but the rhythm is really, it builds a tension and an urgency that actually almost makes you unsettled when you listen to it. Mm -hmm. um, it's got a great chorus, you know, it's, it's, we have more of the background of a thousand Tonys again, and um, sort of, um, you know, classic rock AOR sounding in a way, sort of like a Blue Oyster Cult song with the, the, the chorus that comes through. Love the title, Mist in Your Moonlight, which totally fools you into thinking that this is going to be a soft, romantic, pastoral song. <laughs> And then the lyrics just smack you in the face. He's fooled us with a couple of titles so far. I think so. I think so. And there's some really, really nice double-track guitar solo partway through that kind of shows the twin guitar attack that they were doing, which is very reminiscent of the Stuart and Bruce sound. And, yeah. you know, it's hard to know whether that's a deliberate attempt to create something that sounds that way or if it was natural to these guitarists who were playing But it's a it's 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 a nice solo, but it's a hard song to embrace because it's so dark and um, and stark. Mm. So I'll turn it over to you. I think you're quite right about uh, the hardness of it, both lyrically and musically. Uh, this is a pounding, urgent hard rock blast, and it kind of fits with the '90s and what the country were doing. This this could come out of Buffalo Skinners or, or Wide Long Face. I Fair think it, it's not it's not necessarily that hard musically. It would fit well with those albums it's the lyrics that really pushes it into the into the red here um, it's a very sketching song and my take on as far as what it's about I see it as being about a one-sided relationship like I love you but you keep me hanging on and what the heck are you doing and how can you do this to me uh, and uh, it probably runs much deeper than that but that's the direction and I'm thinking he's clearly with someone who has stolen his heart and he know it and he, like he says I can't run I can't steal away you steal my love then you lock me away like he can't just flick a switch but uh, he, he clearly feels a bit used and I'm wondering if this uh, I feel it's a woman basically because of the verse you, you said I would call you a whore always wanting more 
I should break your jaw, you just use me. Uh, and especially the line, always high on crack, you disgust me. And um, whether this is he's with someone who has turned to drugs or is a junkie, and we all know junkies have, uh, they, they always lie, they always disappoint, they never come through, they, they promise and fail to, to live up to it. It fits with a lot of the things he's singing about in the song. Uh, it's a bit funny the way he sings that line, always high on crack. Uh, it's a bit <laughs> stiff, <laughs> almost self-conscious. But uh, that's neither here nor there. I think this song definitely taps into that. I think, I don't know if it started out as a good love affair, but it's definitely soured at this point. <laughs> Uh, like here I am but I'm nowhere in your life here I am see me let me be so it's basically pleading to be seen pleading to acknowledge and uh, live up to your part of this this one-sided relationship but it's it goes very far in how scathing it is as far as judging that relationship I don't know the, the one thing the one clue he gives us is the, the drug reference that is the only thing. I can't see that this woman has cheated on him. I can't see that whether it's just emotional cold shoulder or what it is. It seems to be deeper than that. That would be like, you don't love me, baby. This is more like, you fucking whore. <laughs> <laughs> so it's very unusual, I think. It's it's not the type of lyrics you'd expect from, from someone like Tony, but uh, yet, who is who always seems to be such a, a sweetheart, that, uh, you know, the kind of guy who would probably get hurt and get to these depths but uh, i'd like to think it's not autobiographical in any way it's very honest emotionally though you know it's funny you mention that because one of the first things that hit me when i was seeing the lyrics were but we always called tony the nicest man in rock and roll and these aren't nice lyrics at all no. but what it hits me is it's like when when relationships end you're very lucky when both people come to the realization that the relationship is over at the same time usually one person figures it out before the other and when you're the person that hasn't gotten it figured out and you're not ready to let go, but the other person is not only leaving but treating you badly in the process, yeah. it does give you a range of emotion that is not different than these lyrics. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it, it goes in waves. So this definitely catches the guy in the middle of that wave of anger. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's, uh, whether it's constant and the same in the morning, who knows? This, is, this seems like it's, uh, it's a wave of emotion and this, this happens to be the peak of the wave. I don't really want to join in that emotion. I don't really want to, I don't necessarily want to feel that way. And so I think it, it sets up a distance because it doesn't bring you in. Um, like the previous two songs both have ways that weighs in that you want to be there emotionally. I actually don't want to, I, 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 this is a very clear evocation of an emotional state he's got that I don't want to join him because not only has this, not only have I been in this situation, of course I've had friends who are in this exact same situation, and you don't want to be with those people when they're at that time. You kind of need them, let them alone, and let them work it out. Mm -hmm. And I kind of feel that way with this song. I, I'm kind of putting this song to the side and just letting it work itself out. <laughs> you're a good friend, Arlen. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I hear what you're saying. Uh, I think for me, um, uh, you know, I'm the guy who will happily listen to Slayer Hello Waits. So, what's this song? <laughs> but uh, I think, again, this song has some marvelous backing vocals um, that has to be mentioned. When he gets back from the chorus the second time and he sings.
again the chorus of tone is that lifts it a bit for me and also the twin guitars in the middle section incredibly nice not a complex part and there's no soloing just very straight melody lines just like what big country would often do so well and you hear them you hear them again here and there through the song so this song has a lot going for it musically so I think, I think song. Yeah, yes. I, I think it's a very strong musical song. For the lyrics, I don't think they are weak either. I actually like them quite a lot. But it's like you said, it's not... Fortunately, I don't have a personal connection to these type of emotions. And I would hope that very few of the listeners do. But, <laughs> um, but if uh, even so, they are there for you to, to study. You, you can look at it as a sociology experiment of some sort. That this is, this is what you can go through. So, all right, how do you rank it? Well, you know, for all the strengths in the song, because I don't want to join him in that emotional place, I had it down all the way at number 13. Okay, 13. So it's not the last one. No, no, that one's still coming. Interesting. Okay, <laughs> uh, 13 is bad enough. I have it as number 9. Ah. So we have The May Queen Leads Her Parade. And I guess a lot of people came to this album looking for big country trademarks. And you'll find them here and there. We talked about several of them. But as far as The May Queen Leads Her Parade, perhaps this is the album's furthest remove from big country's usual sound. Wow. So, uh, yeah, it's, uh, it's really a very unique song in a lot of respects. But uh, before we get into the song, uh, I want to just give some context for the title, because that was an interesting one to me and and I found that the May Queen is a girl who rides or walks in front uh, of the parade for May Day celebrations May Day being of course the first of May and the May Queen wears a white gown to symbolize purity and she also usually wears a tiara or a crown of flowers or something like that and the parade will go to its end destination which is usually a gathering place or a square or something where the May Queen's duty is to begin the May Day celebrations, which is usually done by making a short speech before the dancing begin. And certain age groups will dance around a maypole, celebrating youth and the springtime. Thank you, Wikipedia, for that one. Hmm. Uh, I guess these type of celebrations are more of a British tradition. And I don't know, I'll ask you in a minute about America, but in Norway, I believe uh, also several other countries, at least in Europe, the day is still referred to as May Day. Mm-hmm. But but it is primarily celebrated as International Workers' Day, so the the content is really different. I mean, in in Norway, it's really a place for unions to make their speeches and political parties to declare their programs, and it's more about the workers and the politics surrounding workers. So <laughs> I you, you'll find no May Queen in Norway. Will you find one in in certain areas in the states? You know, r- really, I haven't noticed it so much. The the one time that I did notice it when I was. Um, I've lived all over the country when I was growing up. My parents were restless back in those days. 
And I remember one time we were living in a large, largely German community of German expatriates, and that was a big May Day celebration where we all did that. You know, they set up the Maypole, and when the May Queen brings you there to the Maypole, everyone dances this almost like a square dance where they're all holding long ribbons, mm. and you're sort of intertwining inside and outside of each other until it all wraps around the Maypole at the end, and all the people who start around the perimeter while the while the songs and music are playing as they're wrapping them around the, each other. They're sort of then wrapping the ribbons around the maypole itself, but I don't think that's typically an American experience. I think that might have just been unique to that one particular area. It's not really celebrated here mm. that I've that I've experienced at least. Right. No. Uh, yeah, I, th I think so too. I think I think it is um, more British than um, than certainly other areas. Certainly oh. our areas. It sounds like this song sound very different from the rest of the album. Uh, for starters, there's some airy synth flute hooks here that uh, I don't think um, we hear anywhere else, either on this album or Big Country or, or anywhere else really. And it's not pan flutes. A lot of people said th those are pan flutes. No, they're not. <laughs> because that uh, that opens the, the pits of hell. And this song is, is very <laughs> far from the pits of hell. You have chiming 12-string guitar. There's a very sunny, almost pastoral narrative. It's uh, it's really the emotional antithesis of, of the songs you find in the early Big Country days, on the Steel Town album, on Chance or Poro Man. It's a song totally devoid of bombast or dramatics. It's the opposite. This song is idyllic, it's innocent, primarily describing a day filled with pure joy, with a lot of potential for the future. And I just think looking at the melody and the way this song is built up, uh, I, I just have to say it, I, I really love this song. This song is so beautiful. The, the melody is so beautiful. And, and Tony's delivery is so open, so honest, so earnest. It hits a nerve deep inside. In many ways, as I was thinking about this song, I just felt this is perhaps Tony's Eilidon. He's describing his idyllic place here. Like, this is the place for the future, and this is the, the place to build your hopes on and your dreams on. So I think this is almost Tony's Eilidon. Uh, so Interesting. I, I'm very enamored by the fact that sometimes things can be good, and they can feel this good. And this song encapsulates and preserves that feeling to me. It never really fails. This song will restore my smile if I ever lose it, or at least reawaken good memories that make me feel better. So uh, even though we don't have the May Day celebrations here, we, we have other things that they, they trigger my memories. It makes me think back to my own childhood and the communities we had in rural Norway, maybe more in the farming districts, where people would get together and have celebrations similar to the ones in this song. So even though it's not May Day celebrations, I, I see similarities. And that uh, this song, when it first hit me, made me think back on things I hadn't thought about in a, a lot of years. I just think, um, looking at what you actually find here in the lyrics, it's so incredibly peaceful. There's, there's not a line here that hints of anything bad, which is the thing. Like there's, um, there's always a silver lining. They say when a song is really bad, there's always a silver lining of good. But also in the songs that are good in Big Country, there's always like this dark this, this thin line of dark cloud <laughs> like they can't resist to put something in there 
and this song doesn't have anything like that. It's all and all out, just just peace and and uh, and beauty. Just some examples, just just to take the chorus. When it says, because life is so beautiful, a time for us to live again, a valley so beautiful, a place where we can love again, this day was so beautiful, I can hear the little heartbeat of a child. So I don't know if this is, he's with his uh, betrothed, if she's pregnant and she's expecting. That adds something to the whole song that there's a future here and we're going to build it here. And the song mentions uh, imagery like a gentle breeze disturbs the water by the glade. What a peaceful line. And also there's a reference to the fields of green. And the fragrance fills the air so clean. People might think this is, this is too much. It's too cheesy. It's too, it's too beautiful. Uh, I buy in 100% with this song. This song to me is, is such, it's such a beautiful song. I, I really struggle to really break it down into dry theory of why it, it works. But it, it just works. And I think a lot of that is Tony. And Tony's delivery and the way he sings it and the way he feels it it maybe it, it wouldn't work with just any person delivering this but it works with Tony doing it it really works for me and musically to talk about that it there's definitely roots in British folk which I, I love a lot of British folk uh, especially those that verse towards the Celtic but uh, I, I would listen to bands like Early Strobes Early Steel Ice Band uh, I, I tie into these things just pure nice folky songs and this ties into that but it has these extra musical flourishes also that add something to it This song, this song means a lot to me. It's a very deeply personal song, and I think back at uh, at happy memories. Like I've always dragged music with me around, and <laughs> just to show an example, we I've had this song playing in the car as we were on this this trip, and we came to this overlook, looking over one of our many valleys. With you can imagine the Norway mountains and the fjords and the sun coming up, and the song hits exactly at the right time with, mm. and you're just wow. This song captured it. And those memories go with me. And it's put in a bag that this song represents. So this song just has a lot of happy associations over the years. So I can't. Uh, I, I've blathered on. I, I'm interested to hear if, if this replicates to, to you. Well, it's hard to even know where to begin on this one for me. You know, it's first off, I would say that it, it comes at exactly the right place within mm-hmm. the album structure. Because we've just gone through the winter of depression of post-Christmas and the you know the bad breakup and the raw emotions yeah. come out of that and you really need you you have to have a way to just recover and relax and and find the happiness and joy again that he alluded to two songs ago that he thought would would hopefully be coming and you know certainly this is um 
like you say, the melody I think does come from a from a nice folk tradition. Uh, I'm going to be honest with you. I listen to this song probably twice as much as any other song on the album because I was trying to figure out at the start why I hated it so much. Because it is a it's a beautiful melody. It's you know it's well recorded. I mean the the guitars just chime along. It's uh, and I know it's I I mean I know it's the it's the synthesizers that sound like flutes at the start. It's um, you know I may not want to join Tony in the dark places of, of the night, but I have. It felt like a novelty song for me at the start, and you know for me the only time you should ever hear flutes in a song is if you've got like a documentary on Machu Picchu in the background. It just doesn't work for me, but and I couldn't get out of that that image out of my head of the only thing that I know about dancing around the maypole is like I say that old dance with the interlining ribbons. Right. And I was thinking back to that old '80s video from Men Without Hats, the safety dance where they were doing that, you know. <laughs> and I just I was I was just really struggling, and I, and I knew you liked it, and I thought, well, I got to hear this, I got to be listening to it more because it w- what is it about this song that is just not clicking with me, and. I think that it, what it was was I was just fighting the simple joy and pastoral nature of the song because it really is just a relaxed song of a morning with the sun is shining, the the world is greening back up again. You know, the May Day rituals, as you know, are, are a fertility symbol as well. And, you know, mm-hmm. in farming communities, always in the spring, there's this moment where you just take the time and, you, and the, the sprouts are just starting to come up and, you know, the world is full of hope and expectation of what lies next. The previous song was sort of a dread of that of the pit when you can't get out of the pit. And what comes then directly into this song is just unadulterated comfort and joy. And, and I think part of it is because that's not actually what I usually go to big country to listen for. You know, one of the things that's always been the hallmark of big country for me is the mix of emotions that come out of the songs. And in particular, it's usually one that has a feeling of sort of dread or darkness in the background, but people through that dread and darkness are looking for hope. They're looking for salvation. You know, that my favorite line of all time, see the sun in wintertime, perfectly encapsulates what I look for out of big country. You know, in a time when things are dark and dreary, you're still looking for the goodness. Mm-hmm. And here he seems to have found it. He's surrounded by the goodness around him, you know. And so to me, it seemed like a very minor song, but I, I kept listening for it because... I really do like the chorus, and Tony's voice sounds terrific. You know, he sounds very relaxed, and it, it comes. I, I actually think that this shows that a folk type of arrangements and things in acoustic sounding is probably more suited to his style. And actually, what turned it around for me is when you sent me the um, acoustic version off the Acoustica album, because yeah. I managed not to get that one either. <laughs> I guess, and but that really turned me around because I could get rid of the things that were distracting me, and it didn't seem like a novelty song anymore. It sounded like a folk song, and then finally I went and because I like I said I, was, I probably listened to the song a hundred times in the last three weeks, wow. and I finally saw it um, as I was just driving before sunrise, and the sunrise came up over a beautiful green field, and just everything seemed right with the world, and I find, you know, I up it was like it was like the Grinch hearing the Who's singing down in Whoville on Christmas, you know? I mean, my heart grew three sizes as I listened to that. And I said, all right, I get it now, you know? I just have no sense of fun. And so I just need to embrace this. And you know what it is? This song is such an earworm. that You'll, you'll hate this analogy, but it's almost like a Taylor Swift song when you say, I, I, I don't like this song, so why am I whistling the tune all day long? 
And so I found myself actually starting to whistle the flute parts that I had just been <laughs> previously. That's great. And, and so I finally had to just quit fighting the song and give in to it. And so now when I finally just let the song be what it is and enjoy it in the same happy place that Tony's singing it from, I love this song now. So this is one that that if if you had if we'd had this if we if we'd recorded this ten days ago, um, I you would have inspired a rant of epic proportions. But that's because <laughs> I was wanting it to be something that it's not. And once I embrace it for the song that it is, how can how can you hate a song like this? I mean, you really have to be a hard-hearted person not to like this song. Yet uh, you did just describe yourself ten days ago hating it. <laughs> I did. I absolutely did. Ten days ago, it reminded me of every bad Renaissance fair I'd ever been to. People wear 1400s clothes and drink mead out of, you know, skin bottles. But that's because I was trying to fight the song rather than just embrace it. And so now I've embraced it. This song really is a lot about associations. I have a lot of those associations. And this song bottles something for me that is very unique. If you start having those and connected them to a song like this, then this song will bring those back to you every time. And I guess that's what this song does to me. It, but it's also so beautiful. The, the melody and the way Tony sings it, it's just, it's just gorgeous. And then you can build from there. Because once you start embracing it, the song can have, you can put a lot of meaning into it. You can put any memory you like into it. But obviously if all you have are, are bad German Renaissance fairs, then it's not the best starting point, is it? <laughs> No, no. The lyrics I would write would have been different. But like I say, there's the, when it comes with a song like this, you either you either fight it or you give in. And once you give in and accept all the good things about it as being true, then it it really is a delightful song. It honestly is. All right. Uh, how how do you like it now? It clearly was number fourteen for you. Oh, it was obviously number 14, and that was only because there were 14 songs. I was willing to put in other songs just to move it even lower originally. But <laughs> over the over the last um, 10 days, I, I now that I've actually embraced it for what it is, I've got it all the way up to number two. Wow, that's incredible. That's obviously a 180 turn almost completely. It is. It yeah. is completely, and, and it's and even in the last 24 hours, it's it's you know it's got up. To, I don't think it's going to go any higher than number two, but I'll I'll put it in at two. Yeah, you. I don't. I don't think anyone would expect any more than that from from a song that had such a lousy starting point. All right. Well, for me, it's number one. This is this is my favorite song on the Great Unknown. It didn't start being number one. It was always in the top half. But this song is a grower, and uh, for me, it was not about not embracing it. But there are some songs that are extremely immediate. That's going to have to do it for the first half of the discussion of The Great Unknown. Arlen and I will be back in episode 48 with the second part of The Great Unknown discussion. So, see you then. Take care.
Let's watch the children dancing As they rejoice the end of spring As we prepare for what the summer has to bring in As the church bells chime rings through the air Gathering all the people there The May Queen leads a parade across the square Life is so beautiful, a time for us to live again A valley so beautiful, a place where we can love again This day is so beautiful, I can hear the little heartbeat of a child Sit beside me, hold my hand, and watch the carnival to their good fortune and to you Feel the moment's jubilation While the season changes shape A gentle breeze disturbs the waters by the glade Now the sun hangs high over fields of green A fragrance fills the air so we had Simon we, well how can we forget Simon Phillips on keyboards <laughs> Josh Phillips what did I say I you, said, I, I said Simon. <laughs> Simon Phillips that's funny he's, he's, yeah. a, he's a talented guy but I don't think he's anywhere near a keyboard <laughs> yeah that's a good point. J- j- just start over exactly um, 